0: Every morning I wake up, I think to myself, Lord, you have given me another day. life is a gift of God. Neither you or I chose to be born, but we can choose how we live the life that God has given us. I thank him for that. After this session, before our next session, we will have some questions and answers as we have been doing. Some of you have asked about the answer keys because you want to go back over this material and study it. After the first chapter, if you'll take, for example, the first chapter and you look at the beginning of the second chapter, you will see the answer key and it will say answer key for session such and such. So, for example, the answer key for session one is at the beginning of the chapter on session two, page two. Do you see where I'm looking there? So, I don't like to announce that during the class because some people get so intent on writing the answers in that they miss what I'm saying, and the guide always is something that guides us. Rather, we guide it. It does not guide us. It's our servant. We are not its servant. So you'll notice that we will cover most of the material in the, in the um, booklet, but we may not always cover it in the exact order. One other question that came up yesterday that is on page four and session four, page seven that I want to mention before we have prayer and before we go into our session for today. This is just tying up a few loose ends from yesterday. And the material, the question really was at the end of session four. And so we're going to look at that just for a few seconds and then have prayer and go into our session for today. The question was asked yesterday about the National Sunday Law and The questioner phrased the question this way, and it's a very pertinent and a very outstanding question. Since the latter part of the 1800s, Ellen White has given God's people a call to leave the cities. Does that mean that we should not have churches in the city? Does that mean that all of our churches in the city should um, uh, encourage their members to leave? And does that mean that um, every family in the city should leave? How do you balance the call to leave the cities? Now, somebody says we should work the cities from outpost centers. Well, does that mean that every Adventist family leaves the city and then kind of drives in or drives back? Where do you balance all of that? And the response to that question, we can look at that question in a variety of ways. First, way is this God loves cities and the reason he loves cities is because people live in cities and God loves people there is an urban move today where cities are becoming the major focus of population centers you look at a city like Mexico City which today is the largest city in the world 20 plus million people live there You look at greater New York area with uh, its 12, 15 million, I can't keep up with the population, but multiplied millions. You look at what's called Boswash from Boston to Washington, this great megalopolis that has become a major city today. One thing to keep in mind is the following. The choice to leave the cities is a personal choice that each family must make on their knees before God. And if a family feels that their children are being negatively influenced by the impact of city life and they have young children, that's in harmony with the counsel of Ellen White to leave that environment. Ellen White really gives three basic reasons for leaving the cities when you read her writings in their entirety. One is families with young children may have a very difficult time preserving the spirituality of those young children in the city environment. Secondly, the city is something that wears on you culturally. And even if you're an adult, the impact of the sounds and sights of the city can easily shape the mind to a worldly culture. Thirdly, the cities ultimately are going to be destroyed and um, there, and, and there will be great uh, disasters coming that impact major centers of population. And, of course, there's the fourth reason, and that is there will be a time that we can no longer buy or sell, and it will be difficult to leave the cities. You know, I was interested in looking at what happened when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans. There was a point at which people living there could not get out as much as they wanted to. They couldn't, if you saw the news reports. When a subsequent hurricane hit the Texas coast, that happened as well. It was difficult for them to, to get out because the roads were jammed. And so from the, those are the reasons Ellen White gives. Now, what, So what are the reasons to leave the cities? First, the care for our children. Second, the care for our own spiritual life thirdly, the issue of destruction of the cities, and fourthly, the fact that some people living in the cities will not be able to get out in the future. Those are the reasons to leave. What are the reasons to stay? There are multiple reasons to stay. But the number one reason to stay is to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Because that's where people live. Now, here is the interesting thing in the writings of Ellen White that I want you to keep in mind. First, the decision to leave the cities is a personal one that one must wrought out in the subject of prayer. Secondly, the counsel that Ellen White gave to leave the cities is progressive counsel. Although she began to speak about the call to leave the cities in the late 1800s, there are clear references, one of which I will read to you, that the final call to leave the cities is when the National Sunday Law is passed. Now, if the final call is when the National Sunday Law is passed, what does that mean? That some of God's people will be living where? In cities until when? Until the Sunday Law is passed. So should we have churches in the cities? A resounding yes. Has God led this church to have a passionate witness for cities? Certainly. Will some of God's people be, leaving, be living in the cities until the National Sunday Law? Definitely. Will some leave before that? Certainly. The issue is one of mission and personal conviction. Now, Ellen White makes an interesting statement, and we'll tie up this last time session with this material that I didn't get a chance to get to. Then we'll prank into our session today. But if you look at session four, page seven, Ellen White likens the National Sunday Law to an event that happened in history before. What was that event that happened in history before? What was it? The destruction of Jerusalem in the siege of the Roman armies. So here you'll notice section 4, page 7. As the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for the flight to the Judean Christians... So what's that talking about? In 70 AD, when Titus and the Roman armies approached Jerusalem, they surrounded the city. As they surrounded the city, that was a signal for Christians to to leave Jerusalem. Amazingly enough, in Josephus, the historian's description of the Roman army surrounding the city, they surrounded and pulled back. When they pulled back, that gave Christians a time to leave. And in great controversy, Ellen White says not one Christian was killed in the destruction of Jerusalem. And you know that there were hundreds of Christians living there at that time. So we continue. Testimonies to the church, page 464-465. As the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for the flight to Judean Christians. So the assumption of power on the part of our nation... In the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. It will, next word, yes. it will what? Yes. Be what? Time to leave the large cities preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes and secluded places among the mountains. Now notice there is some sequence here, isn't there? There's some timing here. Why does Ellen White say the National Sunday Law? It will then be time to leave the large cities. I I thought we should leave the cities uh, now. Isn't there a call to leave the cities now? This is the last call, not the first call. For example, let's suppose you're traveling by train. And the steward in the dining car walks through. And he says, it's time for dinner. And you sit there reading your book comes through the second time. It's time for dinner. You sit there reading your book. He comes through the third time and he says, last call for dinner. What's that mean? It means either you go then or you don't get any, right? That's the point here. It's not that there have been no calls before. It is that this is the last call. Because if you don't get out then, what happens? There's destruction of the cities, natural disasters, calamities, and you can't get out. So that's, that's the last call. But if that's the last call, some people are going to get out before certainly. The reason to stay, mission. The reason to leave, the promptings of the Spirit for your family, your own spiritual life. Who should be in the cities today? Those people that want to make a lot of money, right? Those are those the people who should be in the cities today if they're Adventists. Who ought to be in the cities today? Families, singles, individuals who have a passion for the city to win men and women for Jesus Christ. If you are not there for mission, I'm concerned for you and for your soul. We ought to be there for mission. Now, two reasons to leave the cities. One, when the economic boycott takes effect, there'll be no way for Christians in the city to what? Buy or sell. Or you can say legally obtain food, whatever you want, but you can't buy or sell. And it's real hard to grow, uh, grow, grow uh, green beans on the pavement in the middle of the city. I mean, you may have a green roof up there. You grow them off the roof. I don't know. Two, when the National Sunday Law is passed, the United States will have what? This is a key point, too. You're going to write down, filled the cup of iniquity. Filled the cup of iniquity. And national ruin is soon to follow. Cities will be ravaged. You can read that in the and White. The National Sunday Law, the United States fills the cup of its iniquity. Incidentally, In the statement we read earlier, did you notice a sequence of moves? It'll then be time, bottom of the sentence, and I missed emphasizing that and didn't want you to miss it. It's back at the sentence we read earlier. It'll then be time to leave the large cities, preparatory to leaving the smaller ones. So you leave the large cities first and then what happens? You maybe go out to some smaller ones, but ultimately we're in retired homes and secluded places among the mountains and eventually we're not even there. Um, If you turn over... To the next page, and you look at four messages, the sign of the National Sunday Law, it says the National Sunday Law is a sign of four things to God's people. First, that they should leave the large cities. Secondly, the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan. All hell will break loose at that point. And thirdly, America has filled the cup of its iniquity. Destruction is imminent. And fourth, soon probation will close and the seven last plagues will be poured out. So after the National Sunday Law, probation is not yet closed. And there will be a period of time. We don't know that period of time there will be a period of time that um, God will indeed uh, keep probation open, and we can powerfully witness, and many, many will come in. We're going to pray. Before we do that, one other question that came up. Some, a couple of you asked me, what about the Illuminati? What about all these conspiracy theories? That's a fascinating question. Anybody know the history of the Illuminati, when they began? Yes. Okay, Illuminati began in the 1700s, didn't they? That was a good response. Now here's my response to the question about the Illuminati and and conspiracy theories. The Illuminati began in the 1700s. My question to you is this. When did Ellen White live? 1800s. Would you please take the word Illuminati and look it up in the index of the writings of Ellen White and see how many times she mentions it? How many times do do you mention that? How many have read the book, Great Controversy? Okay. How many times in Great Controversy do you read about Illuminati? May I ask you a question that's a thought question? See, I'm a teacher, so I need to ask my students questions. If the Illuminati was to play a major role in last day events, did God forget about it when he gave Ellen White Visions? Do you give God credit for making, in, making most clear what's most important? So if we do not have clear revelation in the writings of Ellen White or the Bible, then all the teaching about the Illuminati must be speculative. And speculation can be right or speculation can be wrong. But I'd rather know what I know and not know all I don't know than know all I don't know and not know what I know. (laughs) I'd rather know all that I know and not know what I don't know than know all that I don't know and not know what I know. God has made most plain what is most important. Stick to what God has said And don't get involved in a lot of speculation. Because speculation takes your mind where the battle is not. May I say something about the reapplication of time prophecies? Specifically the 1290 days and the 1335 days. I said may I. Whether you give me permission or not, I will say it. (laughs) You cannot muzzle the preacher in the pulpit. One of the clearest references is in Revelation 10. There are those among us, you see there is no field that is so ripe for speculation among God's people today as coming events. And there are no minds that are so fertile for speculation as young minds. It is easy to fight the battle where it is not. Okay, It's easy to let your mind get so involved with speculation and theories and, uh, and, and, and fanciful ideas and you study this and you study that and it seems to be so true. Stick with the Bible. Amen. Stick with great controversy. Amen. Stick with early writings. Amen. Do not allow your mind to be captured by fanciful theories that in the end will only leave you discouraged and disappointed. There are some principles by which you can tell every fanciful theory. Did you hear about the conspiracy? 9-11 was a conspiracy. Now I'm scratching where it itches, aren't I? Did you hear... They're going to take over the economy. Look. Look at the broad principles. Look at the broad principles. The message of God. There have been so many popes or this or that, and you can just figure it right out. And you can count this or count that, and we can predict exactly when this or that is happening. You're looking in the wrong place. Revelation chapter 10 gives us a principle, and Ellen White comments on it. And her comments on that principle will save you if you understand one sentence, and I'll read from the Spirit of Prophecy. One sentence is going to save you from a thousand heresies. One sentence. You know, in 1948, a polio epidemic came through America, right? But today we have something called polio what? Vaccine. One shot of that vaccine, one shot has saved millions when Johanna Salk invented the polio vaccine. Saves millions from polio, right? I'm going to give you a shot of heaven's vaccine <laughs> against some of the polio viruses of heresy and speculation that affect God's people and youth to take their minds in the opposite direction. Here it is. Revelation 10.6, and then we'll amplify it with the with a Bible commentary. Now notice, Revelation 10.6, talking about the little book that's open in the hand of the angel. That little book is the book of Daniel. This little book is open in the hand of the angel. This book will be, Daniel was the book that was closed, but this little book that's open in the hand of the angel, it'll be... Uh, Sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the belly. It's a description of the early Advent experience. They studied the book of Daniel. They thought Jesus was coming in 1844. He did not come. It was so sweet in their mouth when they uh, partook of the prophecies of Daniel. 2,300 days runs out in 1844. They thought the cleansing of the earth. They thought the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary was the cleansing of earth by fire. That's history that every Adventist young person knows well. Their minds are saturated in it, right? Okay. Minds of GYC youth are, I hope. So here is this prophecy that predicts the uh, work of Jesus in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. This prophecy that was sweet in the mouth, this prophecy that they misunderstood. There are those that sometimes say that Seventh day Adventists began with a misunderstanding of prophecy. So, how could the Adventist church be right because they misunderstood the 2300 days? May I remind you that there were another group of people that looked for the coming of Jesus? The disciples. They studied prophecy. They looked at a date, 31 AD, when Christ was going to be crucified, and they really thought that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. They saw this Jesus that touched the eyes of the blind. They saw this Jesus that unstopped the ears of the deaf. They saw this Jesus that could heal the sick and break the bread and feed the 5,000. They saw this Jesus, and they said, regarding this Jesus, they said, He will be king, and even right up to the time of the cross, James and John, the sons of thunder, said to their mom, Talk to Jesus, and we want to sit one on his left and one on his right. When? We. When he comes into the kingdom. They studied prophecy. They did not understand. Although they had the prophecies of the Old Testament of the suffering servant. They looked at the prophecies that he'd be king and they mingled those prophecies. They were confused on prophecy. The problem with the disciples, after three and a half years in the presence of Christ, they misunderstood prophecy, didn't they? And they were bitterly disappointed when Jesus died on the cross. But out of the disappointment of 31 AD, they looked to the sanctuary. And they saw the ministry of Jesus as he ascended to the holy place of the sanctuary. And as they fixed their minds on where Jesus was, his Holy Spirit was poured out in the early rain. And out of the context of their disappointment, God raised up the Christian church. Out of the crucible of the cross, out of the agony and sorrow and disappointment of Calvary, God raised up a band of Christians, endued them with the Holy Spirit, and they went to the ends of the earth. Fast forward 2,000 years. The Christian church began out of disappointment. The Christian church began out of a misunderstanding of prophecy. The Christian church began as the Holy Spirit was poured out from the sanctuary. Fast forward 2,000 years. A group of Bible students study God's word. They, too, misunderstand prophecy. They, too, fail to understand that the sanctuary to be cleansed is the heavenly sanctuary for God's last end-time work. They, too talk about the coming kingdom. They too are bitterly disappointed. They too are ridiculed. These early Advent farmers up there in New England, these early Adventist doctors and lawyers throughout America, these early Adventist workers, they're disappointed. Husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, children, they're disappointed. But they too look to the sanctuary. And out of the context of their disappointment, God raises up an end time movement that too will receive the Holy Spirit and go to the ends of the earth. The parallel is exact. Prophecy, prophecy, first century, prophecy, last century, prophecy, first century, disappointment, last century, disappointment. Holy Spirit poured out, Holy Spirit poured out. It's exact, but follow me closely. Describing the experience of the early Advent believers and describing the experience of the the 2300 days and the fulfillment of that prophecy, we read in Revelation chapter 10, verse 6. It says in verse 5 and 6, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his hand to heaven. So the angel lifts up his hand to heaven. Now, when an angel lifts up his hand to heaven, what is he doing? It says, and he swears by him. So here you have an angel that comes in the presence of God that's lifting up his hand for heaven. This is a solemn oath. This is an angel giving an oath. When God sends his angel to give his oath, I want to pay attention, don't you? Now here's what the angel says in oath. But, but but I read about the reapplication of the 1290. I read about the 1335. I think this, I think that, I'd rather listen to the angel that raises his hand in oath. Here is God's vaccine against some of the viruses of heresy that will sweep through Adventism and take the minds of youth captive in the last days. See what difference does it make if you go off the road on the right and down the cliff or a truck hits you coming head on? Whether you get hit by the truck of liberalism. Or you get taken off by the skeptic, by by the fanaticism on the right. You still get taken off. God wants you to be in the middle of his road. Notice, he swears by him that lives forever and ever, who creates heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that are therein, and the sea and the things that they're in. Notice the wording here. This is an angel with his hand lifted to heaven, and he comes to speak the words of the all-powerful, almighty creator. At end time. And what does he say? There will be what? Time no longer. What is he speaking about? At the end of the 2300 days in 1844, prophetic time ran out. So after 1844, there will never be a message again on time. On time. Now, notice how Ellen White interprets this text. Seventh Bible, Commentary 971. The people of God will not have another message based on a definite time. Therefore, if the message in the future is not based on a definite time, what is it based on? Next verse, verse 7. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, that's today... When he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. And what is the mystery of God? Colossians 1 verse 27, the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's the devil's idea. Get people looking at time. What's going to happen from the National Sunday? What this time? How do I apply this prophecy? How many popes are there? And I get all this stuff in my head, but it is the mystery of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So since 1844, it is not now that we are looking at some prophetic time shot to calculate days and years. No. Jesus has wanted to come for over Since 1844, shortly thereafter, when the message of Christ went forward, that's why Ellen White says Christ would have come ere this. So the emphasis of God's people now is on before God opening our hearts to him to fill us with his Holy Spirit so we can give his loud cry to the world filled with the latter rain. The issue now is not to have your head tied up in some speculative time prophecies. God's vaccine against all that is there will be time no longer. God's vaccine against that is that God's people will never have a message of test on time. The message is experience, the experience with God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus developing within his people, his character. I love that old song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself where? In thee. May the water And the blood be of sin. What? The what? You know it. The what? Double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. The gospel is not only to save us from the condemnation of sin in the past, but the power of sin in our lives. It is the double cure. Grace not only covers my past. It delivers me in the present. Let's pray as we go into our class for today. Father in heaven, these are some weighty matters we're dealing with in class today. But you are the one who fills us with your grace and your power. You are the one that we come to today. And say to you, have your own way, Lord. Have it in our lives. We want to be the young people that are loving and kind and compassionate. Jesus just fills our hearts. We want to be filled with your grace, your power, your goodness. And we long that your Holy Spirit take complete control of our lives and moves through us to transform our world. And so, Lord... Use us powerfully, we pray thee in Christ's name. Amen. Do you know that song, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way? Adelaide Pollard was a missionary to Africa. And she came back to England for a short period of time because she wanted to raise some more money so that she could stay in Africa. She had run out of money and had enough to get home. She thought, I'll go from church to church, tell mission stories about Africa, raise money. And she worked a couple months at it, and in the churches that she went to in England, nobody seemed to want to give. They weren't concerned about Africa at all. And one night she was so depressed, so discouraged, she had no money to go back to Africa. She had spent much of her life training to go to Africa. Did you ever have something you really wanted to do, but it didn't seem to be fulfilled? You want to do something for God. It's a good motive. You long to preach for God. long to be a missionary for God. long to do something for God. She longed to do something for God, and it just wasn't happening in her life. And she was discouraged. She was depressed. She was downhearted. And one night she was in a prayer meeting at a little church. Just a few people were there. And as she was in this prayer meeting in this little church, one lady prayed, Oh, Lord, you know how financially in debt I am. Lord, please bring money to me. Another lady prayed, Oh, Lord, I'm sick. Please heal me. Another lady prayed, Oh, Lord, I need a husband. Please send him to me. (laughs) And they all were praying about what God needed to do for them. Pretty soon there was an old woman there. And with a raspy old voice, hands in prayer shaking, voice quivering, this old woman just said, Lord, have your own way with my life. Lord have your own way with my life Adelaide Pollard went home And she sat down and began to weep And words came to her mind And as she wrote she wrote these words Have thine own way Lord have thine own way Thou art the potter I am the clay Mold me and make me After thy will While I'm Waiting yielded And still can we sing that song As we enter into class have thine own way Lord Can somebody start it for us Have thine own to last day events that does not lead us on our knees to passionately pray before God have thine own way Lord have thine own way is merely speculation and fanciful theory the consummation of the gospel will take place when men and women whose hearts are open to God say Lord have your own way in my life In our class today, we look specifically at some of the issues that are going to face us, and we look at the seven last plagues and try to harmonize them with the character of God and his love. You're looking in session five on page three. And take your Bible, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. This will be a balancing act. You'll need to balance your workbook on your lap. Your Bible in your hands and your pen, if you can write with a mouth stick, that would be helpful, I'm sure, because you've got one hand for your Bible and one hand for your workbook, and, but you are creative, so I do not fear for you. Okay, Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. The central issue of the great controversy focuses on one question. Revelation 14, verse 7, it says this, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and do what? Worship him. So the central controversy in the the central issue in the controversy between good and evil in the last days is worship. Just like that has been the central controversy down through the ages. Just like it was the central controversy in heaven. Revelation chapter four and verse eleven tells us why God is worthy of our worship. Revelation four and verse eleven. You are worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So the Bible says that the central issue in the controversy between good and evil is worship. And the reason God is worthy of worship is because he is our what? Creator. And has he left a symbol of his creative authority? Has he done that? And what's the symbol of his creative authority? The Sabbath. So if you attack the Sabbath, you attack the creator. And if you get rid of the creator, you get rid of the whole concept of what? Worship. So do you see why the devil has attacked the Sabbath? He attacks the Sabbath because he wants to get rid of the creator. And if we were not created, if we evolved, there is no necessity to do what? Worship. So the central issue is worship. Revelation chapter 14 Revelation chapter 14 Central issue is worship True worship or false worship Revelation 14 7 talks about True worship Revelation 14 9 talks about False worship Then the the third angel followed them saying With a loud voice if anyone worships what The beast So worship the creator verse 7 Do not worship the beast verse 9 Verse 12 Here is the patience of the saints Here are those that keep what The commandments of God. What happens to those who worship the beast according to verse 10? What happens to those who worship the beast according to verse 10? What is it? What do they receive? The wine of the wrath of God. So what is the wine of the wrath of God according to Revelation 15 verse 1? Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, having seven angels, having seven last what? Plagues for in them is what the wrath of God. So the wrath of God is not the anger of God. The wrath of God are the judgments of God on sin and God's judgments are poured out upon sin in the seven last plagues. What comes first, the mark of the beast or the seven last plagues? What comes first, the appeal to true worship or the seven last plagues? appeal to true worship. So, in this last day event scenario, there will be a crisis over worship. That crisis will come to a focal point at a time of economic disaster, at a time of political disaster, at a time of chaos. And as things are falling apart around us, Satan recognizes that this is his last attempt. So, he begins to work a mighty false revival, false miracles, false tongues. He does that to deceive. As that is occurring... Church and state will unite, and as that is occurring, you'll find this moving together, and the people demand, in a time of crisis, a common day of worship. This is not some uh, dictator. It is not some uh, ruthless ruler, but rather people, seeing their society fall apart, seeing chaos and calamity and natural disasters around the world, People come together. They put pressure on their legislators to pass a day, common day of rest and worship. Uh, and varying religions don't drop their denominational identity. They unite on the points they have in common, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness. Muslims move in that direction as well. Hindus move in that direction in a time of great calamity, in a time of great crisis. People do things in desperation, in crisis, that they will not do when there is no crisis. Sometimes I'm asked the question. Somebody said to me, even yesterday, Well, Pastor Mark, what's happening in Washington today as far as a National Sunday Law? We hear that one is right on the verge. Not true. There is nothing happening in Congress today that indicates a National Sunday Law is imminent. Not there. But... That is not to say it couldn't happen tomorrow or the next day in a crisis. You see, all this speculation merely causes intelligent thinking people to lose credibility in everything we say. See, all these sheets that go out and all these web pages that go out, there's a national... No, it's not being passed through Congress today, but you give us some major crises. And all of mentality could change. I remember back in the 80s, we had this great gas crisis. And Harold Lindzel, editor at that time of Christianity Today, wrote an article on the oil embargo. And some of us who lived, as, who lived back then, some of you have been born since that time, I recognize that. But some of us who lived back then re- remember, I mean, I was just a young child, it was hard for me to remember. No. Back in the 80s. <laughs> But, you know, some of us remember these lines at the gas line, these lines at the gas pump. And, you know, Harold Lenzel writes this article in Christianity Today, and he said, look, to save the environment, I propose that um, we have a common day of rest and worship. And I propose that the way out of this crisis is, 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 is for all Christians to get together and, uh, and to have worship on Sunday. See, well, in a crisis, people do strange things. So don't allow your mind to say, well, not much is happening on that front today. What would happen if you had five more hurricane Katrina's and hit major cities? What would happen if the multi-billion trillion dollar debt of America, what would happen if the economic bottom fell out? What would happen if there was earthquakes that knocked out part of the West Coast? What would happen in that crisis? Could it be that in the context of crisis, secular men and women who are devastated by those crises economically, politically, socially turn to their knees. And could it be that Sunday becomes that common vehicle of, uh, of rest and worship? Indeed, that's what the Bible and the writings of White teach will happen. Now, once everybody has had a chance to respond to the gospel, once the gospel is going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, why hasn't Jesus come yet? Well, you know what it says in Matthew 24, verse 14. What does it say? And this gospel of the kingdom... Shall be preached what? To all the world, as a what? Witness to all nations, then what'll happen? When then? When then? Then the end will come. The Lord is long suffering, not willing that any should perish, Peter says, but all should come what? To repentance. The Lord is not slack concerning his what? Promise, as some men count slackness. So why isn't Jesus come? His heart is so loving. He is so kind. He hasn't come because your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, your neighbor, your classmate may not know of his love. You know the word long-suffering in Peter is an interesting word. It says God is long-suffering. You know what long-suffering means? It means he suffers long. He suffers long. <laughs> That's what it means. It doesn't simply The Greek word doesn't simply mean patience. It means he suffers long. From the inception of sin, he is... Suffered long. Education 263 says this. It says, The cross is, our revela- is a revelation to our dull senses, to the pain that sin from its very inception has brought to the heart of God. Every deed of cruelty, every departure from right brings grief to him. So if you think sin hurts you, you have got over the world, and he attended 100,000 funerals yesterday, and he'll attend 100,000 today, and 100,000 tomorrow. He sees the heartache, the suffering, the pain, and the death. He sees the famine. He sees the victims of rape. He sees the victims of poverty. He sees that little boy that steps on the landmine and it blows off his legs. God sees all that. God sees that little boy with the, with the distended belly whose stomach is swollen because of the uh, internal intestinal parasites that ha- have uh, have given him that, that that disease. God sees all that. He sees the heartache. He sees the sorrow. He sees the victims of a thousand wars. He sees the victims the child victims of prostitution that are sold by their parents for $25 into prostitution at 10 years old and they're taken to brothels. He sees all that. I don't know if God can cry, but I sure think he can. And sometimes in my quiet moments I hear God crying. Has anybody ever said to you walking down the hall here at the Youth Congress and somebody says to you, "Hey, how's your day going?" How's your day going? Have you ever got on your knees in the morning and say, "God, how's your day going?" Have you got on your knees at night and said, God, how's your day going? How'd your day go today, God? I don't want to be interested in me today, God. I just want to know, how'd your day go? And if our hearts are open to listen, I am certain that we will hear something like this. You know, Mark, my day went rough today. I was with victims of poverty. And I saw them starving to death. And I was with... I was with a little boy in Iraq, and he stepped on a landmine and it blew off his legs. And Mama held him as he bled to death in her arms, and I was with her. I was with a a mother with her three children, and she put them to bed in Minneapolis, and a husband came home drunk and just hit her in the face so hard it broke her nose. And when I heard the breaking of her nose and I saw the blood running down her face, it pained me. And I was with the victims of rape as they screamed. It was horrible. Mark, I saw all that. And I say, Jesus, why don't you do something about it? Why do you do something? Because I've given every human being the freedom of choice. And if I step in too early and I come, millions would be lost. Lord, what are you waiting for? I'm waiting for a generation of my people to love me so much and hate the world so much that all they want is home. Amen. One thing is for certain, and I will tell you, One thing is for certain, the older I get, the more I know this world is not my home. There's a lot I don't know. The more I study the word, the more the depth of it I see. But there is one thing I know, this world is not my home. This world is not my home when the innocent die young. This world is not my home when I get a phone call and some kid goes through the window of a car because he's hit by a drunk driver on the way home from college. And I go to the hospital and hold his hand when he dies. I know this world is not my home. This world is not my home. When I walk out of a meeting in Rwanda and a young orphan falls at my feet and he looks in my eyes and I see those those black eyes that are so innocent. He looks up at my face and he says to me, I have no daddy. Will you be my daddy? I know this world is not my home. I know this world is not my home. As I go through the ghettos of the great cities of, of America and I go into some tenement apartment five stories up and I give a Bible study to some Lady that's half-spaced out on drugs and hope the Holy Spirit will reach her mind. This world is not my home. I know that. This world is not my home when bombs drop and children die and and there are victims of famine and heartache and death and disease. This world is not my home. And Jesus longs to come. And whatever pain you and I experience because of this world, he experiences more pain. He longs to come. But the thing that he's waiting for is a generation of young adults and a generation of, 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 of men and women that are as passionate about his return as he is coming. He longs to return to this world. And as the gospel is spread, it will bring a crisis, and men and women will accept it, and the latter rain will be poured out, and the loud cry will be given, and Satan will hate that, and a national Sunday will be passed, and the whole issue is about worship. But when every human being has given, been given the chance, the judgments of God will fall in what is known as the seven last plagues. Now, there are two things we want to look at. And you're coming over to pages five, page, page, five and six, pages five and six. We've looked at what is the wrath of God? That's on page five, page, page four, page four. What is the wrath of God? You've noticed that that's the seven last plagues. You can write them who receives the seven last plagues. Those who receive the mark of the beast. So what's the wrath of God? Seven last plagues. You can write it in there and who receives it? Those that receive the mark of the beast. You can write it there. Now, we need to take a brief look, just a very brief look at when, these, when Jesus will come and when the plagues fall. And let's take our Bibles. I know you're writing, so let me give you time to do that. What's the, the wrath of God, the seven last plagues? And who receives these seven last plagues? Those that receive the mark of the beast. Now, when do the plagues fall in reference to the coming of Christ? You're turning to Revelation 15, verse 8. Well, let's, we have it there, and we can take a look at it. I wanted to use the King James Version of the Bible, and I noticed I've used it here. Sometimes I've used varying translations if they made it a little clearer. But here, notice, let's read together Revelation 15, verse 5 to 8. You'll see it in the box right under when they do fall, page 4. You ready to read? And after that, I looked. Let's read together. And after that, I looked. And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven, angels of the, to the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Now, can anybody enter the temple until the seven plagues occur? Can they? What does the Bible say? It says no man or woman, no person, was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were what? Fulfilled. Where is the temple? Well, according to Revelation chapter 21, the temple has to do with the eternal dwelling place of our heavenly Father when we will see. I saw new heaven and new earth, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, prepared, coming out of heaven. So God's temple, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That is his temple. So nobody can enter into that heavenly temple till the seven plagues are fulfilled. That must mean then... That the plagues take place and Jesus comes after the plagues, not before the plagues. In other words, we are not raptured before the plagues. The concept of the rapture is a subtle deception of Satan for an easygoing, crossless, health and prosperity form of Christianity that is so prevalent on the popular religious TV preachers today. Seventh-day Adventists believe in a God who is strong enough to hold them in his hand and keep them secure in the time of trouble. But we live in a society that says, no pain, no suffering. Jesus came and died on the cross to give me a life of joy and happiness and prosperity and fulfillment. And if if you're sick, you're off the map, not on the map, they say. If you face any debt, you're off the map, not on the map. All you need to do is be faithful to Jesus, and it will be like sitting on a cloud floating to the kingdom with health, wealth, and prosperity. They don't quite say it like that, but if you listen long enough, it's very similar. But the problem with that is it's not realistic to life, because everybody sometimes goes through some sorrow in life some heartache in life, some disappointment in life. And Christ holds us in that disappointment. We serve a Jesus who often does not deliver us from tribulation, but who's with us in tribulation. We serve a Jesus who at times does not deliver us from sickness. At times he does, but who's with us in sickness. We serve a Jesus who... Was with Noah during the flood, although the ark was being tossed in terms on the, turned in the, thrown up and down in the waves. We serve a God who is with Joseph when he was betrayed by his brothers, when he was lied about by Pharaoh's uh, wife, and and rather the servant, the Potiphar's wife. We serve a Jesus who is with Joseph in prison. We serve a Jesus who is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery flames. We serve a Jesus who was with Daniel in the lion's den. We serve a Jesus who was with Job in his boils, affliction, financial adversity, and when his house fell down. We serve a Jesus who was with the apostle Paul, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, and put in prison. We serve a Jesus who was with Peter in His bondage. We serve a Jesus who understands suffering, who had nails driven through his hands, a crown of thorns upon his head, who was rejected. We serve a Jesus who is fully capable of meeting every one of life's trials and tribulations. That is our Christ. He is powerful enough to keep us through the time of trouble. So clue number one about this relationship between the plagues and the second coming of Christ. You see it there. No man, uh, session five, page four, no man was able to enter into the temple until after the seven last plagues. That's first you see there. Secondly, you will notice clue number two. Revelation 16, verse 15. He says, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is he who's awake and keeps his garments. Now, wait a minute. Let's go to Revelation chapter 16. We're going to look at that quite thoroughly shortly, but we look at it just momentarily now. Revelation 16. You have in verse 2, the first plague, a loathsome sore on the men that received the mark of the beast. We'll go back and look at that in more detail. Verse three, second angel pours out... His bowl on the sea, it becomes like the blood of a dead man. Verse 4, third angel, third plague, rivers and waters become blood. Verse 8, fourth plague, sun scorches men. Verse 10, fifth plague, the darkness on the seat of the beast. Verse 12, sixth plague, and again, we'll go back and study these. River Euphrates dries up, Armageddon, what's that mean? We'll look at it. But after six plagues are poured out, verse 15, reading together. Verse fifteen, reading together. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see a shame. What sense would it make for the Revelator to say he's coming as a thief after the announcement of six plagues? If he came as a thief before the plagues, do you see the reasoning? It would make absolutely no sense at all in Revelation 16, verse 15, to say he is coming future as a thief if he had already come as a thief in the past at the beginning of the first plague. So if Jesus comes as a thief, okay, before the plagues begin to rapture his people, there was an evangelical movie called Thief in the Night. Did any of you see it? I'm checking up on you. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah, I saw it. Yeah, why'd you see that one? <laughs> I didn't watch it either. I read about it in three sentences. I knew it was error, so why fill my mind with error? You know, somebody said to Ellen White one day, did you read D.M. Canright's book, Seventh-day Adventist Renounced? You know what her, her answer was? If that polluted his mind, why should I let it pollute my mind? <laughs> now notice. Behold, I am coming future as a thief. So he doesn't come before the plagues as a thief. You want another interesting one that, has a, that, that those that believe in the rapture theology have a real hard time with? Their idea is Christ comes as a thief before the seven last plagues. When I give Bible study to them, I show them this text. I first show them Revelation 15:8. Nobody can enter the temple until, he is, uh, until the plagues are fulfilled. Then we show them six plagues uh, have already been passed, and he's still coming as a thief in the future. But take your Bible, turn to Peter, and look at Second Peter. Second Peter. And you're going to look there at the imagery that is very, very fascinating. There's some wonderful imagery in Peter, and um, it talks about this second Peter chapter three, verse ten. Those that believe the rapture will say, Christ is coming as a thief to rapture his people before the tribulation, and you will say to them in all kindness and gentleness, second Peter chapter three, verse ten. Before you read the passage, in all gentleness, you will say to them, tell me what it's like when he comes as a thief. And they will say to you, oh, he snatches his people away. And, you know, you can be on an airplane and, uh, and some are snatched over here away. And maybe the pilot is snatched away. And cars can be driving down the street and they can get in accidents because they're snatched away. Or, or, and, you know, two will be in the field, one will be taken, two will be in one bed. And the husband who oh, says where's my wife? She's gone, you know. Um, so this is this is the concept, and I don't mean to make light of it, but the, he comes as a thief and snatches them away. And so you know there's an interesting passage about his coming as a thief, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That was the title of the movie, Thief in the Night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works therein will be burned up. So when he comes as a thief, it is not a secret Coming at all. Because the elements are burned up, he comes swiftly, unexpectedly to the world as a thief. But those of us who are studying the signs of the times are not children of darkness, but we are children of light. So the thief imagery is the rapidity with which he comes. It is the fact that those who, uh, when he comes to the unprepared and they don't expect him to come, that's why Matthew 24 says it's like in an hour that you think not. The coming of Jesus as a thief is always in reference to time, never in reference to manner of his coming. It's like this, here in Minneapolis, if a thief is going to rob your hotel room, he doesn't Knock on the door and say, here I come. (laughs) Thieves usually don't announce they're coming. They come unexpectedly. Same thing with the thief imagery in the Bible. Let's go back then. So clue number two. Clue number one, no man's able to enter the temple until after the plagues. Clue number two, Christ announces his future coming. You're writing the word future in. After six plagues have already been poured out. That's where he says, I am coming as a thief. Christ announces Kutu, his future coming. We saw that in Revelation 16, verse 15, after six plagues already poured out. Conclusion Jesus is coming when? After the plagues. Now, there's something else that we need to notice just briefly here, and that is this. These plagues are called the seven what? The seven what? Seven what plagues? Why are they called the seven last plagues? Or any plagues before? Where were they? In Egypt, how many were there? How many in Egypt? How many at end time? Why 10 in Egypt? Why 7 at end time? Well? (laughs) Well? Getting some interesting answers. The first three affected the general land the last seven Affected the, Israel, the, the Egyptians, but the Israelites were protected, you see. First three affected the general land. So the seven last plagues, they do not touch God's people, just like the seven last plagues of Egypt didn't touch God's people. You see, when the, when the firstborn was slain, the Israelite firstborn was not slain. But the first three plagues affected the land in general. But the last seven only affected the, the specific Israelites. Okay, so the seven last plagues. Now, let's look at this interestingly you're writing some words in. Okay. Let's look at the parallel between Israel in the plagues and God's people in the plagues at end time. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, reading together. Now, all these things, you see where we are? Session 5, page 6, 10 plagues of Egypt, 7 last plagues. Now, all these things happened unto them, children of Israel, for what? Examples. They're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So everything that happened to Israel was a What? An example to you and me. Look, in the nation of Israel and in the end time, both groups, the Israelites and those of us who are spiritual Israel at end time, both groups are what? Persecuted. So you're writing the word persecuted in there. If you look at Israel during the time of Egypt and you look at God's end time Israel, both groups are, you're writing in pressured to break God's law. So, the first words you're writing are persecuted. Secondly, pressured to break God's law. Number three, both groups appear helpless. Israel in Egypt appeared helpless. All the mighty armies of Egypt were arrayed against Israel. At any time, when God's people are forced to break his law, when they can't buy or sell, again, there will be persecution and they will appear helpless. But, in the days of Israel... God used the plagues to break the backs of the Egyptians, and Israel was delivered before or after the plagues. Which one? After. Israel lived through the plagues and was protected. So both groups are what? Protected during the plagues. Number four, both groups are protected during the plagues, and both groups are delivered by God when? After the plagues. So, groups are delivered... Protected during the plagues, but delivered after. So let's go over those five again. Number one, both groups are what? Persecuted. Number two, both groups are pressured to break God's law. That's Israel and end-time church. Number three, both groups appear what? Helpless. Number four, both groups are what? Protected during the plagues. And five, both groups are delivered by God after the plagues. So if God's end-time church was delivered before the plagues... Israel would not be a type of God's end-time church. Just as Israel was protected through the plagues, God protects his end-time church through those plagues, and deliverance comes at the end of the plagues. Now, for many, many years, the plagues troubled me. Couldn't understand them. I'm going to leave our booklet, because you can write in the answers, but follow it. I'll follow the outline of it. And I want to go through the Bible and simply look at the plagues with you and raise this question. Why would a loving God pour out seven last plagues? Are the plagues arbitrary scourges on the part of God to punish? Why these specific plagues? Is it true that God is love? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. Can you see the love of God in the seven last plagues? Is it true that all prophecy is Christocentric, meaning that all prophecy is to teach us about Jesus? So the question becomes, what do the seven last plagues do to teach us about Jesus? Are you with me? Amen. Now, let's go through the plagues, and you can go back, fill out your book later. But we're going to go through the Bible on the plagues, and you can look at that later. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out your bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. I want to look at each plague And look at how it relates to Jesus. So the first went, and I should say this, the plagues are literal plagues. These are not symbolic, spiritual. We can't spiritualize the plagues away. You read the book of Revelation, they're real plagues. You read great controversy, they're real plagues. So I'm not suggesting that we spiritualize the plagues away. Quite to the contrary, they are literal. But the question is, what is the deeper message for God's end-time church in the plagues? Revelation 16, verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those that worshipped his image. Who did the sore fall upon? Does the Bible tell you it fell upon? Who did it fall upon? Those that had what? The mark of the beast. Who conversely then did it not fall upon? God's people. Now, the... The first plague is a physical sore like a boil that covers from head to toe. It is the loathsome, pussy, red irritation. It is a physical affliction which makes the body writhe in pain. It falls on those who have the mark of the beast. So the question then is what. Did those who enforce the mark of the beast say to get those who received the mark of the beast to take it? Do you understand the question? What did those who enforce the mark of the beast say to get those who receive the mark of the beast to take it? They said this. If you receive the mark of the beast we will give you physical security. Are you with me now? If you want physical security, you don't want to suffer pain. You don't want to be persecuted. Take the mark of the beast. The first plague is a physical affliction that says those who enforced the mark of the beast could not deliver what they said. What is the call of the first plague, spiritually. All physical security is in Jesus. All physical security is in Jesus. In sickness, you can give him your body. I would rather trust Jesus with my body for physical security than go to some spiritualistic healer and be healed now to receive boils later. All physical security is in Christ. Every plague teaches us about Jesus. There is no one that can give us any physical security except Jesus. So if you happen to be writing in your books, plague number one is, you see where it is there? Sessions five, page six, plague number one, painful what? Sores. What's man's message and what's God's message? Do you see? What's man's message? If you accept the mark of the beast, you will have what? Physical security. God's message is physical security is where? In Christ. So you can follow along because I'll cover the material, but I won't tell you every blank to fill in. You just get the concept. So plague one is a physical plague, physical sores. Man's message is we can give you physical security. God's message is all physical security is where? In Christ. There is no physical security outside of Jesus. Plague number two. In plague number two, the... Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. It became as the blood of a dead man. Every living creature died in the sea. Now I want you to think of that. If the sea becomes as the blood of a dead man, if every living creature dies in the sea, what is that going to do to shipping? What's that going to do to the shipping of oil? What's that going to do to the economy? If anything like number two happened, what would it do to the economy? there would be a crisis like we can't imagine if every living thing died in the sea because the sea think of all the ports think of all the shipping think of all of the uh economic think of the interconnectivity and the global market with the economy if anything like the second plague ever happened the whole economy goes bust those that enforce the mark of the beast say what Take the mark of the beast and you will be able to buy and sell. If you don't take the mark of the beast, you'll have no economic security. What does the second plague say? All economic security is where? In Christ. The first plague says, give him your body. All physical security is where? In Christ. The second plague says, give him Everything you have because all economic security is in Christ. That does not mean you leave penniless as a beggar on the streets. I do not mean to infer that and I need to clarify it. Everything I have is Jesus. It's dedicated to him to be used as he directs me to use it. But the point is all physical security is in Christ. The second point is all economic security is in Christ. Look at the third plague. Third plague, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and is to be, because you have judged all things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Before the close of probation, there will be some martyrdom. After the close of probation, no martyrdom. Why not? Because, the, because we are not playthings of the devil. The only reason there will be martyrdom is because the faith of Christian martyrs will stimulate some judge, some Roman centurion, figuratively, symbolically, it'll stimulate somebody else to accept the gospel. God will not allow a life to be taken if in the time of crisis, before the close of probation, before the seven last plagues, he won't allow that life to be taken unless there's a benefit to the salvation of somebody else. So the devil cannot take our life. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Amen. If we are a Christian, if we're committed to Christ, our lives are not playthings of the evil one. But notice, what did those say? Who wanted, to take, wanted you to receive the mark of the beast? They said, unless you take the mark of the beast, what? We'll shed, we'll shed your blood. Our life is in your hands. But what does the third plague say? Our life is in the hands of Christ. The first plague says all physical security is in Christ. The second plague says all economic security is in Christ. The third plague says what? My life is in Christ. What is the fourth plague? The fourth plague, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to scorch men with fire. The fourth plague, the sun scorches you with fire, but the object in the controversy is over what issue? Worship, and rather than Creator worship, they have passed a what kind of law? Sunday Sunday law, and they haven't realized that the object which they passed has been the object of pagan worship down through the ages. The Egyptians worshipped the sun in Amun Ra. The Babylonians worshipped the sun in Bel Marduk. The Persians worshipped the sun in Mithraism. The Romans had the invincible sun god. That which has been the object of worship unknowingly scorches men. What is the hidden message of the fourth plague? All true worship is in Christ. See, the first plague calls us to give him our bodies, physical security. The second plague calls us to give him our money, economic security in Christ. The third plague calls us to give him our whole life, that only in Christ can we find true, genuine life. The fourth plague calls us to give him all of our worship and the affections of our hearts because all true worship is where? In Christ. Fifth plague is what? What's fifth plague? You know it well. Darkness is where? Does it tell you where the darkness is? On the seat of what? The beast. They looked to the beast for light, but there was only darkness. Jesus said, John 8, verse 12, I'm the light of the world. Jesus said, if any man will come after me. He will find light and truth. So they've looked to the beast power on an earthly throne for light. But the fifth plague tells us that all true light is where? In Christ. So the first plague says physical security is in Christ. The second plague says economic security is in Christ. The third plague says our life is in Christ. The fourth plague says that all worship. Is where? In Christ. The fifth plague says, all truth is in Christ. Jesus is the center of every topic of last day events. The more you study last day events, the more you know about Jesus. Now, somebody once said, the mind can only handle what the seat can endure. I'm going to go into the Battle of Armageddon, the last battle, but you need some fresh air because I want your minds to be fresh. Only seven people were nodding and sleeping this last session, so I felt pretty good. I saw that. Now listen to a word from the old man with gray hair. You go to bed a little earlier tonight. I know, I know that GYC is wonderful. And I know that discussion that you had with that sister girlfriend that you haven't seen for 22 years. I know that was fun last night, but I want you fresh for Sabbath, okay? Tonight you pray about 9.30, you go to bed about 10 o'clock, you sleep, from about, you sleep for a while tonight, you've got to be fresh tomorrow. The Holy Spirit's going to come down and you don't want to sleep and miss it. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC Generation of Youth for Christ If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation or if you would like to learn more about GYC please visit www.gycweb.org You can also find great witnessing media at www.audioverse.org and at www.hopevideo.com